0: So, in honor uh, of Beth having some guests with her, a very special guest, we are returning to the Kingdom of God Series Day, which is Beth has been lobbying for for a while. You may re- recall that uh, um, we had started this series, and then we uh, took a couple weeks off to talk about fasting, and then, frankly, the the uh, seminar that we were asked to give at the Alliance for an Old Churches conference went so well, I decided to teach chapter 2 of that seminar here, which took about five Sundays. So we're uh, going way back to the Kingdom of God series, and I've kind of revamped it. If you want to look on the very back at the end, uh, it was originally proposed to be 13 titles, and now it's 15 titles. However, I see what, that up there where it's at the top where it says the Kingdom of God series, it still says 14 titles. Please note that that may be subject to change. That's uh my trying to think it through as best I can right now. This is a subject I've been thinking about for uh, 38 years plus and uh, developing. And um, we, uh, uh, what I've decided to do, I, I felt like in chapter 1 that we did not need to repeat that. So I, But I am repeating chapter 2. How you doing, Paul? Good to see you. And so uh, we're going to kind of re- restart this with chapter 2. And then, frankly, I've changed the uh, titles of chapters 3 and 4 and so forth. Anyway, that's where I inserted some new chapters. So our theme verse for the series is Matthew 6.10. Uh, before we get to that, the first chapter 1 it was called The Central Importance of the Kingdom of God. It could be called The Primacy of the Kingdom of God. But it's about the fact that the Bible actually has one underlying unifying theme. Um, Since the 1850s, after what was known as the modernist fundamentalist controversy, which birthed the modern phenomena of evangelical Christianity, um, after that time period, it has been primarily the uh, way of approaching Scripture to have uh, individualized text not in much context. And so... Uh, Generally, you have your Christian ideas and you find proof texts to match those ideas rather than looking at the Bible as having one author, therefore uh, one or a few unified themes. Um, Of course, the Bible is 40 books. uh, I'm sorry, the Bible was written by 40 authors, 66 books, 66 books written by 40 authors, uh, on three continents over a 2,000-year period of history. Uh, yet, it is the doctrine of Christianity that all Scripture is inspired by one God and that was written by one God. Second Timothy 3.16, a doctrine that you would study in theology called the plenary inspiration of Scripture. Books that are written by one author don't generally uh, have... Uh, Sixty-seven thousand unrelated points that have nothing to do with the other sentences in the book. So, what? Uh, one of the most important things in, in approaching the Bible is to understand he, there's one author who had one predestined purpose, and he and it contains one progressing revelation. And so, the most important thing you can do in terms of Bible reading. Is that uh, I would encourage you to read at uh, less than a devotional pace. In other words, read at a steady pace. Read the whole Bible several times at the beginning of your Christian life, so that you can begin to see it as one book and see that the that in it is uh, one Triune God is revealed. God the Father, God the Son, and, and God the Holy Spirit are three persons in one being. Uh, existed from all eternity before he he created time for his redemptive purposes as revealed in the scriptures. God is outside and above time. He doesn't live in the time-space continuum. He created the time-space continuum for his purposes. So the major theme that runs through the whole Bible is the kingdom of God, and the unveiling of the King of the kingdom of God, who has progressively unveiled our Lord Jesus Christ. So that was really uh, what chapter 1 was about, if you weren't here for that. And with that, there are several interwoven uh, central themes that all help us understand the kingdom of God. And uh, if you look at your titles, that's really what we're going to be looking at in chapter 3. Now, our theme verse is Matthew 6.10, Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, the prayer, that prayer is, is smack in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. And the Sermon on the Mount has long since been understood by Christians of all centuries to be the central and foundational primary teachings of what it means to be a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. In Matthew 5.1 It says there were great multitudes surrounding them as a result of what he was doing in Matthew 4, healing the sick and casting out demons, proclaiming the kingdom, making disciples. So when he saw the multitudes, he went up on the mountain, it says, and his disciples came to him and speaking to them, that is the disciples. He began, and the things that he teaches in the Sermon on the Mount, are the basic primary principles of what it means to be a follower of Christ. Right in the middle, he teaches us not a prayer that we pray by rote necessarily, although the church has memorized it for centuries. We'll touch on that hopefully in a minute. But the principles and goals of what we're to pray. So of all prayer teachings in the Bible, this one is foundational. If you're going to be a disciple... You're going to pray to your Father, speaking of your relation, the relationship that was restored when you became a son of God, receiving Christ and deciding to take up your cross, deny yourself, and become a disciple and follow Him. You uh, you understand His name is holy; He's the only holy thing, and all holiness derives from Him. He's uh, He's in heaven; that is, He's transcendent; He's above and beyond nature. And he then tells us what to pray, your kingdom come, which uh, he gives us a hint what that means, your will be done. A kingdom is a place where a king's will is done, right? So then he says that our, our prayer goal, which would also mean, therefore, be our goal as Christians, is that his kingdom would come in the same manner as it is in heaven, that the earth would begin to reflect heaven. And as you study the Bible, you'll see from Genesis, in Genesis, God created a garden, and he put a man and a woman in the garden, and plants and vegetation and animals and all sorts of things. But that garden was meant to be a transference of the Holy of Holies, the temple of God in in the heavenlies, into the earth. And he put four rivers in the garden that went to the four corners of the earth, which is Bible speak for filling the whole earth. And they were to take that, the, the manifest presence of God that they enjoyed daily. Genesis 3, 9 indicates that that God came to speak to Adam in the cool of the day. And they were to take that manifest presence of God to raise up children by being fruitful and multiplying, and their and every seed brings forth its own kind as established as a principle in Genesis one, and they were to take those children who were like themselves under King Jesus, living under uh, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Let us make. Let us first first a hint of the Trinity in the Scriptures, Genesis one twenty six. Let us make man in our image, and let us, uh, get you know caused them to rule and so forth, they were to export the kingdom of God through their progeny, through their children, to the ends of the earth. When they fell from that purpose, God, who is eternal and immutable, who, who's uh, not a man so that he, is, that he should change, the Scripture says, can have, still had the same purpose. And he wasn't caught off guard. He didn't say, oh, no, I didn't have plan B in place. Actually, that was all part of plan A. Hebrews 13.20 talks about the blood of the eternal covenant. Before there was a creation of even time, which we tend to have a, be so born into and so involved with that we have a hard time understanding outside and above time, I love the song Amazing Grace, for instance, great song, except when we've been there for 10,000 years is bad theology. <laughs> We're just going to be a beyond time. So um, with that in mind, what God wants to do is export his kingdom to all the earth. And the Bible tells us in many repeated ways that the earth will be filled with the glory of God as the waters cover the seas before our Lord Jesus returns. Now, that has not been a vogue idea, starting with the adoption of certain theological paradigm shifts, which we will look at in uh, chapter 12, Current Concepts That Conceal the Kingdom. But nevertheless, that remains God's purpose. Even if the uh, soldiers are running from the battle and scattered and disarrays and in great confusion, it's not the the king's purpose to lose the war. And we happen to be serving the kind of king who's not going to lose the war. So with that in mind, what I want to do today is I want to define the kingdom of God. What does it mean, uh, the kingdom of God? Now, I also want to make clear just one point that you should know the Gospel of Matthew uses the phrase, the kingdom of heaven, whereas the rest of the scriptures tend to use the phrase, the kingdom of God. They mean exactly the same thing. Matthew, God always, uh, uh, one, one key to understanding the Bible is God, and one un- key to understanding your own calling and our church's calling. God delights in, uh, like 1 Corinthians 1.26 says, there were, consider your calling, brethren, there were not many mighty, not many noble, not many skilled and, and and wealthy and so forth according to the flesh. But God has chosen the base things of this world to confound the wise. The way God works is he takes the least likely candidates to show forth his glory. He converts them, he disciples them, he matures them, and they become the instruments to show forth his glory. God always takes um, your weakest uh, worst characteristics and makes them his strengths. If you want to know where your calling lies, think about all the areas you were messed up in before you came to Christ. Paul was a Pharisee of Pharisees, which means not only was he breathing out murders against the church, but a major part of Phariseeism, and in fact, the reason God decided in Matthew, Ichabod, I'm done with Israel, is because they were supposed to take the glory of God to the Gentiles. That was Abraham's calling from the beginning. In you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And they had developed such hatred for the Gentiles that they were blocking the kingdom. What were you, Pharisees? Because you, you lock the kingdom up to men. You won't touch it with even a finger yourself, and you try to hinder any who are entering in, and especially if they're Gentiles. It wasn't uh, all about the that they were selling things in the temple when Jesus cleansed the temple both at the beginning of his ministry and at the end of his ministry, very important point, and uh, we'll deal with later, but um, it was because they were selling in the court of the Gentiles, which was supposed to be the place where the Gentiles came through to to be sanctified purified atoned for so that they could enter the holy place and they had they had totally blocked that to the point where they saw no use for that room except to make their profits so uh, with that in mind uh jesus speaks primarily of the kingdom of god Matthew uses the phrase kingdom of heaven. I started to get on that and sidetrack myself. Just like Paul was a hater of Gentiles, and therefore he became the apostle to the Gentiles, Matthew was a traitor to Israel. He was a tax gatherer. Now today we tend to think of uh, drug dealers maybe as the worst sorts of people. Uh, Probably a good thought. But uh, the, the Truth of the matter is, in in Jesus' day, the worst scumbag thing you could be would be to be a tax gatherer, because that means you are collaborating with the conquerors of Rome all through the Bible. One of the things we're going to see is that there are enemies of God, and the enemies of God uh, include Satan and his demons, but they work primarily through people groups to oppress God's people. There's always been the haters of God and the lovers of God, and they've and the haters of God have always oppressed and persecuted God's people from the very first time when Cain killed Abel to the Egyptians that enslaved Israel. That's a major theme of the Bible, as we'll see in chapter 3. So Matthew was actually Levi the tax gatherer. Read about him in detail in Luke 5 if you want. And therefore, uh, if, if, if any of you know any World War II history, he would be equivalent to the Vichy France government, the puppet government the Nazis put in place after they conquered France. And many, a French person said, well, this is the reality of what it is. I'm going to maximize my profits by collaborating with the Nazis. Those people were hated by the French people long after the war was over. Likewise, there were tax gatherers who were collaborators with the Romans to shake down God's people and extort more taxes out of them. And the Romans basically made deals with these tax gatherers to give them soldiers to protect them and so forth. And they were required to bring about a certain amount of taxes, and anything they could shake down the people for above that was, was their profits. That's why you see both Zacchaeus and Levi as very wealthy men. The tax gatherers were the worst scumbag that could be and therefore, God used Matthew, once he was sanctified, mature, discipled, and totally released into his apostolic calling, to write the greatest love letter from God to Israel that's ever been written. The Gospel of Matthew is the, is the central document of the Bible to, to, to say to Israel, you crucified your Messiah, you killed your king. You were hoping for Emmanuel, God with us in Christos, the Messiah. He is one and the same, Jesus Christ, and you uh, you killed him. And therefore, through Matthew, God is is calling them back to repentance. The, there's a modern idea that there will eventually be a reestablishment of a political Israel and and all this, and that they all somehow be saved by the law or something. No one will ever be saved except by grace through Jesus Christ. Just get that straight. And so, uh, Matthew is God's invitation to say, I cut you off, as Paul talks about in Romans 9, 10, and 11, from your own natural tree, and I grafted the Gentiles in, but you too can be grafted back into the rich root of God in Christ, If you repent and and come through Christ, he is the tree. He is the one who died on a tree. He is the door. He is the shepherd of the sheep. He is your husband. He is the true vine. Every Israelite knew that that was a major symbol of the Old Testament for the people of God. Jesus is saying, I am the rich root of the people of God. And you must plug into me and be grafted into me to be God's people. And there will never be a time when there's any other way to become God's people because Jesus pronounced in Matthew, therefore the kingdom will be taken away from you and it will be given to a nature that produces the fruit thereof. And in fact, that's a spiritual principle that if you look from an eternal perspective into the earth, uh, is always happening within the earth. The kingdom is always being, t- being taken away from those who don't want this man to rule over us, as Jesus said uh, in the parable of the, the vine owner, or the vineyard owner, or planted a vineyard. And it's given to those who come under his kingdom and produce the fruit of it. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and prove to be my disciples. That, the proof of discipleship is the, the quality of the fruit that you bear. So, because every seed brings forth fruit after its own kind. Your children will become like your marriage. Your children will become like your walk with God. Now, we all can be called to and are called to rise above whatever circumstances we have in Christ, thank God. But uh, if you want to do something good for someone, go further with Christ first. If you care about, say, uh, the kids down at the school that we minister to, then there's one really important thing you can do. Be a total sellout to the Lord Jesus Christ. Take up your cross, deny yourself, don't seek to save your life, totally lose it and find it new in Him. When you radically do that, you will have much to give. Freely you are given, freely give. The the farther you go in Christ and the farther, farther a people group, a church goes in Christ, the more they have to offer. We measure what, what it more means in America by quantity. I suggest you first ought to think about quality. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. All right, so that's a little background. Matthew uses, therefore, the word kingdom of heaven out of respect to the Jews, that's only that was a long, long sidetrack. But it got us some uh, covering of, of major Bible ideas here. Uh, M- Matthew uses the kingdom of heaven because the Jews of his day thought what was called the Tetragrammaton—that is, YHWH—which you sometimes see as Yahweh, you sometimes see as Jehovah. It's always uh, in your English Bibles. It's Lord in small caps. If you notice the word Lord in the Bible and you read the key at the beginning of your Bible, you'll see that uh, different names of God are translated Lord with different uh, types of alphabet. And the the small caps ones are always Yahweh. I am that I am. He who causes to be the the eternal one, the absolute creator of heaven and earth. The one who upholds all things by the the, uh, glory of his power and uh, the word of his power and so forth. So... The kingdom of heaven is the major thing that Jesus talks about. It's the major thing Paul talks about. It's the major point of Genesis 1, 2, 3, 4, on through to Revelation 22. Uh, so that, that's important to see. So be, we'll start looking at the kingdom of God in the Hebrew Scriptures next week, or actually I think I've moved that to week five now. And Next week, we'll look at major biblical things uh, that tie into the word kingdom or the kingdom of God. But today, I want to define kingdom of God in my remaining time. I've got about 30 minutes to give us 12 definitions, about two and a half minutes per per definition. Let's hope by the grace of God I can do this. The kingdom of God is the reign, government, rulership, or dominion of God. Okay? Period. Think on that. The kingdom of God is the reign, government, rulership. Or rulership or dominion of God. It is the sphere or realm in which his good and perfect will is willingly enacted or willingly entered into. It involves angels and it involves redeemed people who have been given a new heart to want to do the will of God. That's what it means to be a born again Christian, to to be converted, to be a disciple is you become a God pleaser. Galatians 1.10, Paul says, If I was still trying to please men, I could not be a bondservant of Jesus Christ. Uh, you know, a Christian is someone who God has delivered from being a man-pleaser to be a God-pleaser. And that you have this desire in your heart. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. You have a desire to be rightly related to God. To know Him, to represent Him rightly, and to spread His will. Uh, The kingdom of God is not only as it is in heaven, but it's on the earth now. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth. The kingdom of God is now. Notice, uh, starting with John the Baptist, the message was, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand, some translations say. It's a very difficult phrase to translate, but it means it's right here now in your midst. It's among you. Jesus, that was the first thing he said, repent for the kingdom of God is here. Matthew 4, 17, his first public ministry after his fast, that was his first sentence. Repent, that is, turn away from and turn toward the seeking and pursuing of God. Turn away from sin, turn away from self-will, turn away from all sorts of things. Whatever is contrary to turning toward the pursuit of seeking, loving, and knowing God. Because the kingdom of God's right here now. Jesus, in essence, was saying, I am the king. I am the kingdom. uh, The kingdom's in me, and therefore, the kingdom's in your midst. Okay, so um, God owns and is completely sovereign over all the earth, and therefore, even his enemies do his will. However, only uh, the recipients of his reconciling Ministry of Reconciliation, 2 Corinthians 5, 13 through 21. And his empowering grace are free to participate in his redemptive purposes. Now, it's amazing that even God's enemies in the end serve his purpose. The reason there are demons and so forth is because you need them. They're an instrument of God for your sanctification. You need to f- find out how to be emptied of your strength and your thoughts and your purposes and your empowerment to find his by the power of his resurrection and by the power of his Holy Spirit so that you can stomp on the enemies that are trying to resist you. We, we need that as the people of God together. It's just uh, God, has left, there's, God has left you with a sin nature after you become to Christ because you need to learn how to humble yourself, draw upon his grace and power, and the new creation within you needs to rise up and slay the old man. And you need that warfare. It's God's love gift to you. So even his enemies do his purposes, thus the ex- experiencing the what Paul calls the obedience of faith, which you should translate trust, as we've killed the word faith in our culture so much that we think it means uh, agreeing with uh, intellectual concepts, but it's a relational word. It means to trust in, cling to, rely on, follow, take up your cross and, and chase after and obey. That's why Paul calls it the obedience of faith in both Romans 1 and Romans 15. So the kingdom is for... Uh, Those who uh, follow him willingly and let his will be done, which is to restore you completely into the image of God that you were meant, that's called sanctification and maturation and maturing in the Christian life, so that as a seeker first of his kingdom, his kingdom can be extended through you. Christians are always wanting to... uh, you know, well, we need to launch this program, we need to launch that program, we need to raise money from this guy and that guy for this and so I suggest to you that the most important direction to fight the war is to become more like him, is to go deeper in discipleship, to go deeper in Scripture knowledge. We're we're in a famine of God's Word where almost hardly any Christians know God's Word thoroughly. Secondly, the kingdom of God is both present and future. Now, everyone agrees with that. It's not primarily heaven or the age to come, but a breaking into this present evil age with the power, order, spirit, and reign of the king now and on the earth. Everyone will, every eschatology, George, Eldon, Ladd, any any of that camp or whatever camp you want to get into, they always will say the kingdom is already and not yet. It already exists now, and there's more to come. However, to the degree that you emphasize, as Jesus did, as Paul clearly did, the kingdom being now, to that degree, your expectations of what God is is going to do through his church now will raise to his level. If you ever begin to understand what God really wants to do in our own time period— you know, the sons of Issachar were people who understood the times with knowledge of what God was doing. If you want to know the purpose of God for your generation, as it says of David, you it has to be as big as him. That's why when the kind of the negative eschatology and the and the um, uh, surrendering the earth to to you know to other things and, and taking Christianity primarily to what we do behind church doors and and all that kind of retreatism that has, that has uh, really kind of destroyed our culture over the last 150 years, when that be- those ideas began to flourish, uh, a preacher named Charles Spurgeon, who frank- frankly a lot of people still quote, is interesting now to read his whole writings, he basically said this retreatist philosophy is going to become very popular, considering the lack of, of in disciplines in our age and our prosperity, because it's easy to believe, it takes no commitment. It takes no zeal, and it takes no discipleship. We can all believe for the earth is going to get worse and worse and worse until Jesus rescues us out of here. That doesn't take, we probably should just go home and have a big breakfast or something. I mean, (laughs) that's easy to believe in. Charles Spurgeon, about 1890s. The the negative eschatologies and the things we'll study in chapter 12 uh, really were kind of uh, invented by a guy named J.N. Darby in about the 1870s. Uh, Frankly, they were invented. Some of the ideas were invented in the 1830s by an an Ohio-based cult called the Millerites, but they were picked up by uh, by evangelical Christians after the Civil War, and they became the predominant evangelical framework between 1890 and 1930. During that 40 years, it kind of swept all of the ideas of the reformers out the window in favor of of the new ideas uh, that were basically designed to fight modernism, but they themselves were new modern ideas to fight modernism. And um, although Darby invented them, they were popularized mostly by a guy named Schofield in in a thing called the Schofield Reference Bible. By the 1920s, they were the predominant framework of Bible-believing Christians. So, um, the main point here and point two, because i got to fly along a little better, the kingdom of God is present and future, but the Bible's emphasis is on the present. Psalm 110 is quoted over 15 times and alluded to many others in the New Testament. It's the most often quoted psalm in the Bible, and there's not even a close second, It says, the Lord said to my Lord, Jesus quotes that to the Pharisees, uh, trying to get them to deal with who he was, sit at my right hand until, that's a time word, until when? Till I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. He doesn't get up from the right hand of the Father until the enemies become a footstool for the body of Christ. That's why Spurgeon, in that same quote about how these ideas will get very popular, he also says the Holy Spirit would never allow the impunity to be attributed to his name that he could not convert the world. The idea that only there's a few more souls are going to get saved as the ship goes down is not an idea that comes from Scripture or faith, And the idea that we're only saving souls in the sense of praying a prayer to punch a ticket, uh, and it has nothing to do with changing the world by changing one individual at a time, is not at all the biblical Bible's message, as we'll see as this series progresses, getting ahead of myself. Thirdly, God has eternally purposed to express his reign, that is his kingdom, his government, through a nation of people born of one regal head, in a time-space continuum in this, what Paul calls in Galatians 1-4, this present evil age. God's purpose has always been eternally, outside of time, before he created any of it, to express his kingdom through a people group, a nation, a city within the city, a nation within the nations, a people for his own possession, who uh, show forth his glory and they, be, and they were born of one royal head. Adam was to be that head. He fell, and Christ became the second Adam. And that just doesn't mean that he erased a blotch of sin. That means he restores you to Adam's full calling and mandate. Called in Genesis 1.26, often uh, theologians call that the cultural mandate or the dominion mandate. And we'll study that in, as part of this series. Fourthly, the Bible reveals that his premeditated plan was always that his special treasure, that's what he calls Israel in Exodus 9, 5, and 6, and Peter quotes that to the church in 1 Peter 2, 5, and 9, that his special people, uh, his special treasure would be a people for his possession, and they would willingly enter into his death so that in dying his death, they might be reborn to his resurrected life and, and be the sons of one royal head and be one family. If you haven't read the book When the Church Was a Family or if you haven't read our uh, light hearts, The Kingdom and the Power, I suggest to us that we totally underestimate what the church is supposed to be about in our day because we've lost this kingdom thing. And the, and the church is the primary agent of bringing the kingdom, as we'll see. So the, the, a people group... Who died so that they may be reborn of one regal head into his resurrected life and enter now into his new kingdom creation? Second Corinthians five seventeen. If anyone's in Christ, they're a new creation. The old things have passed away; new things have come. You, if you are born of water and the Spirit, Genesis, John three five, then you can enter the kingdom of God. Okay. And that's beyond John 3, 3, beginning to perceive the kingdom of God. You have to first start to see it before you can begin to chase it and enter it and have it enter you and work through you. So, uh, now, God, uh, in other words, there's no true kingdom life on the wrong side of your daily crosses. You can become a great theologian, quote hundreds and thousands of verses and even have a great anointing of the power of the Holy Spirit on your life and be of little use to God if you haven't gone through daily crosses to make you you dead. (laughs) Like Paul says in Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ and it's no longer I who live. As long as there's selfish ambition, vain glory, Uh, my will I want my way I always get my way you know one of the things that I'm a little tough on my sons and my my spiritually as well and daughters is uh, is we I think we live in a time period where we're probably more than any generation in the history of the world we're spoiled you know we haven't faced a major war since the 1940s Uh, we've had a prosperity that uh, is unprecedented in human history there's reasons why the prophets say, When I prospered you, then you grew fat. Uh, we, we are softer than, and, and less motivated and more passive, and life kicks us around more than any other group ever. Passivity is a major problem in, in our times. Most people, life is kicking you around. People always say, well, how are you doing? Fine under the circumstances. I said, you you know, by God's grace, for God's sakes, don't live under the circumstances. (laughs) You know, what are you doing under the circumstances? God has called you to find his grace to be empowered by overcoming the circumstances. He doesn't ever promise you that it's going to get easier. He's going to give you a table in the presence of your enemies. Gent, That's Psalm 23, if you... Hopefully, everyone knows that one. Uh, The kings of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who have authority over them are called benefactors, but it's not this way with you. The one who's the greatest among you must become like the youngest and the leader like the servant. So only as as your will is crucified, as your will to dominate and power causes you to become a servant leader, are you able to enter into Christ's purposes. He didn't come to be to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Who are you pouring your life out as a drink offering for? Who do you, at the end of the day, have served so thoroughly that you're like, Whew, I'm exhausted. I've been loving, serving, caring, giving for 18 hours, and I need a good I need some sleep. <laughs> you know, I suggest that's a day well spent. Five, God's predestined purpose has always been and remains to produce a kingdom of priests born of, filled with, and extending the manifest presence of His Spirit. Together, they are to be, or we are to be, God's temple built according to His pattern. The Bible talks about patterns all the way through. Starts in Genesis 1. With every seed brings forth its own kind, you know, uh, the wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it but you don't know where it comes from and where it's going so is everyone who's born in the spirit what they can what they can see through of god's spirit is only the manifestation of what we do frankly that's why a a christianity without the gifts of the spirit is impotent Um, and we'll always be losing the ground if you look at all the places where the, the kingdom and the church are exploding in the earth today, they're filled with resurrections from the dead, casting out demons, prophecy, speaking in tongues, healing, all sorts of things. You look at uh, the cultures that have come under the influence of the, the Enlightenment's Western philosophy of skepticism and unbelief and doubt, and therefore don't think the gifts of the Spirit are for here or now, the, the church is losing ground everywhere that that's taught. If by Beelzebub I cast out demons, by who do your sons cast them out, Jesus said? For they'll be your judges. If I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Don't fear that people say, oh, casting out demons and speaking in tongues and prophecy and and getting baptized in the Spirit, all this stuff must be from the devil or whatever. You know what? No one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Verbally live a life and in your conduct live a life. That shows forth the lordship of Jesus Christ, and let them worry about it after that. It's their problem, because you're here to serve them, not to be. Inf- you can't serve people you're afraid of. That's right. you, you, If you're afraid of someone, you, you can't love them. That's why one of the reasons the Bible says, "Oh no, man, anything except to love one another." If you you can't love if you're in debt. Uh, Sixthly, ultimately, in the final analysis of all God's actions, movements, works, and dealings, everything he does in and through his church, by his spirit, through his word, are designed to produce that nation that we've been talking about and work in and through it to subdue the entire earth and manifest his glory, except the Bible's view of subduing is the opposite of the world's view of subduing. The Bible's view of subduing is, is to release and empower. Equip, train, release, empower. Not too fast, lest they become conceited and fall into the condemnation of the devil, but as fast as their character is able to handle it. So, uh, this involves reproduction of children born of his spirit. That's called evangelism historically. But again, we got to move from a a decision-making model of evangelism that developed... Uh, in the last century, to a disciple-making model of evangelism. Almost all statistics show that 95% of people who pray a sinner's prayer never show any fruit that would, that would give evidence of their having been reborn or converted. Almost every church agrees with that because of their studies. But, we, you know, Einstein said to keep doing things the same way and expect different results is the height of insanity. And I'm suggesting in this series that we need to rethink everything, especially if we're going to move into making disciples of all nations. If, you, if they don't become a disciple, you haven't done anything to love them or serve them. And if they don't start getting their eyes open to a bigger view of what it means to be a disciple and follower of Christ liberate them to the point where they believe that it should look like Jesus and it should look like the apostles and it should look like the book of Acts because anything less is less than what God's intention is. This involves a reproduction of children born of a spirit, producing his character, his fruit, and his works. It's interesting that there's nine gifts of the spirit listed in 1 Corinthians 12 and nine fruits of the spirit listed in Galatians 5, 22, and 23. And a dove has nine feathers on both wings. And the dove is symbolic in the scriptures of the Holy Spirit. Whenever God calls any individual, it is always for this larger purpose. We have this whole idea that's developed in modern times where you got called, and we want to get young people to come forward at the camp and say, I've been called of God, I've been called of God. Too much emphasis on I. We've been called of God, all of us. You are off in full-time ministry. If you don't feel sent, we can lay hands on you. I'd even be glad to give you a little push out the door or whatever, but you are called and sent. The main thing is uh, get your fishing gear, learn how to use it, and, and, and it's always a team effort in the Bible. It's never a Lone Ranger thing. Nobody, the Apostle Paul had a team. Over 30 some people in the, in the New Testament are, are associated with Paul. Do a Bible study on Tychicus. He's mentioned in Paul's team specifically about where he's going and what he's doing and stuff six times. Epaphr- Epaphras, Epaphroditus, Titus, Silvanus, Timothy, etc. All right. Uh, Seventh, the triune God predestined, foreknew, and ordained that his holy covenant people would always war against opposition. I had to go and put that point in, and now this will never sell. Okay. The opponents would include Satan, his angels, and demons, and the people's nations and rulers of this age who persecute his people as they're empowered by Satan and his demons. They started with Cain killing Abel, Uh When Abel died, Seth took over the mantle to carry the God line in the earth. And uh, then eventually Shem, and that's why the descendants of Abraham are called Shemites. Semitic, anti-Semitic means to be anti-Israel. Abraham, Israel, the Sermon on the Mount, etc. That's the whole point, is that there's, you know, Jesus promises that if you follow him, you'll be persecuted. That's one of the great promises. People love you know promises of the Bible, and people have little promise boxes. I wonder how many promise boxes they have actually say things like all those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted Of course we' just put that one back in another one but uh <laughs> you know uh, don't like that. There was a lady uh during the uh during the british bom- or the the Nazis bombing of britain uh That had a promise box and she was all very afraid and said oh god, you know, they're bombing our city I need a promise and she pulled out a scripture and it said though it tarry wait for it for it shall surely come (laughs) Uh, I think she put that one back but uh, Number eight the Bible is the book of the kingdom It contains the history of the kingdom of God in the earth past present and future It contains the laws and covenants of the kingdom It contains a history of the covenantal kingdom people. It contains a progressive unveiling of the person of the king, our Lord Jesus Christ. It increasingly brings to light his ways, his heart, his character, his kingdom purposes through his ecclesia. Now, if you read what's called the Septuagint, the Greek version of the Old Testament, that interestingly, both Jesus and the apostles quote from extensively, they quote from both the Hebrew Masoretic version and the Septuagint version, as if they're both fully the word of God. And that is what Jesus means in Matthew 16 when he says, I will build my church. Because we don't read the Old Testament, especially don't know what the Greek words mean or the Hebrew words. People miss what he's saying. He's saying Moses was called of God to lead a people out of Egypt. He, in the wilderness, they made covenant in Exodus 19. He gave him his law in Exodus 20. He dealt with them for 40 years until uh, symbolically every, everything has to die in order to be, so the first generation all died with the exception of Joshua and Caleb. And uh, so that a new people that were reborn of God could enter his kingdom purposes through Joshua, Jesus, their captain, leader, and so forth. And Jesus is saying, I'm going to build my version of that. That word is normally translated church, but it's the Greek word for the called out assembly of, of the government of the city. God increasingly wants to reveal his heart. The mouth speaks out of the abundance that fills the heart. I'm so amazed at how many people say, I love God and I became a Christian and Jesus wonderfully saved me four years ago, five years ago, ten years ago, and they've never read even one time through the whole Bible. Well, that's a little bit like getting a letter from your parents When you know your parents are very encouraging and they got good and wise counsel and there's probably a check in there for doing your laundry at college or whatever and there's a box that has cookies and things like that. Some parents send, I forget what they call those, like relief packets or care packages or something and you just ignore it. That's what we do to God. We haven't read his letter to us. Many Christians have not even read through the whole Bible one time. I suggest that if you're more than a year or so old in the Lord and you haven't read through the Bible one time, you've got to rethink everything, including what kind of church you're going to, because if your church isn't encouraging you to do that, there's something really wrong. Now, nine, no person, boy, I might have to do the back half of this uh, next week, See, I'll go a couple more minutes. No person can have any ultimate fulfillment, purpose, or joy. This would be a good transitional one. We'll redo number nine next week. No person can have any ultimate fulfillment, purpose, or joy without the illumination of knowing and experiencing the king. You were meant to worship him. The ultimate view of slavery in the Bible is to not be in love in a, in a willing bondservant and slave of King Jesus. Because if you're not a bondservant on fire and passionately loving King Jesus, then you're enslaved to all sorts of other things, from procrastination to selfish ambition to passivity to lackadaisicalness to uh, complacency to lust to uh, greed to uh, Whatever. Whatever, by whatever a man is conquered, by that he's enslaved. Jeez, according to the Bible's view, you're, like Bob Dylan said during his Christian phase, you're going to have to serve somebody. That's Romans 6, put to modern music. Uh, you're going to have to serve somebody. It may be the devil. It may be the Lord. Remember that song? Some of you are in old love. But uh, you're gonna ser- you are serving someone. Every day, whether you know it or not, your life is sanctified, I shouldn't probably use that word. It's set apart to the service of either bondage or freedom. And if you want to, if you want to be used in this generation to lead people to Christ, focus on helping them see, because this generation, you know, the whole question authority of the 60s and stuff has become so deeply ingrained that it's, you know, people are calling it the culture of narcissism and, and so forth. People think they're free. If you can help them see that they're actually a slave to their impulses, to their lack of character, to their lying, to their deceptions, to their passivity, to their greeds, to their lack of ambition for for God, or to their selfish ambition. If you can help them see that they're actually enslaved, then you've really loved them. So we'll pick up uh, with number nine Uh, and read the rest of it next week. Amen.